let me review real quick uh, from last Sunday uh, what we talked about and we looked at. Uh, the, the title of the message was uh, Trees and Tables, a Warning for Us All. We looked at Mark chapter 11, verses 11 through 25. And uh, as we read through how Jesus came and he saw the fig tree and he cursed it because there was no figs on that tree, no fruit on that tree, and continued on into, into Jerusalem. And uh, there he found in the temple, and the temple courts there, uh, the money changers and all the things that were going on there. And he flipped those tables over, uh, declaring that this place needed to be a place of prayer. And uh, it was uh, probably a difficult moment, maybe even for all of us to read through and go, mm, wow, Jesus really hit some hard with that. I thought he was kind of gentle. And, and, and we, we kind of try to discover, is Jesus, do you see Jesus as gentle or, or a judge? And uh, the thing is, is that if you see him as gentle, you should also see him as judge. If you see him as judge, you need to see him as gentle. We need both because uh, Jesus is that. He's all things. And uh, we need to be sure that we don't contain him in a, in a box of our own liking and uh, make sure that uh, we understand that he, yes, he is judge. Yes, he is gentle. And uh, those things uh, don't... don't uh, cancel each other out. And also, too, we looked as well in this portion of Scripture, and we discovered because Jesus is holy, He will judge the fruitless who have every opportunity to bear fruit. We have the, all the opportunities to be able to bear fruit as well, too, through the Spirit in our lives and to be able to uh, uh, let others see Jesus' love in us and letting people uh, um, come to know that through our, our words, uh, our actions. And so we have that opportunity to bear fruit. If we are fruitless in our lives in that way, then we need to reevaluate where are we with God? Is this just only fire insurance from hell? Or are we actually living through life and actually being able to live for Christ, growing in Him, learning what it means to have the fruit of the Spirit in us? So uh, we... He will judge the, the fruitless who have every opportunity to bear fruit. And uh, like I mentioned, uh, when he went into the temple, he did, he did declare that the, that place is a house of, uh, of prayer. God's house is for prayer. And we looked at that, and we, we realized, too, that that is a priority in our lives. We need to have prayer. Prayer needs to be foremost in front in our lives, no matter what. Uh, we pray for all the different things in our lives. No prayer is too small. And no thing is, is, is too great that we can't bring to, to God in prayer. It needs to be brought to Him in prayer. And this place as well, too, will be a, a house of prayer as well. We will commit to prayer, and we will, on our Thursdays, uh, we have that time set aside, be able to come to, to the Lord and, and bring the requests, not only that are in the bulletin, but other things as well, too. But we not only just pray for things in people's lives, but we also pray for um, people in their spiritual walk as well. And we're praying, we're praying for our president, we're praying for our governor, we're praying for the mayors, that they would have wisdom, but that they would also know Christ, that they would have saving grace in their lives. So those things we're praying for as well. And the physical ailments and stuff, yes, we pray for those as too, but that's not the only thing we pray for. But prayer should be a priority in our lives as well. And we also realize, too, that God's heart is for all nations because he said that, that uh, uh, his house will be a house of prayer for all, all people. And 
we need to realize that as well, too, being uh, accepting to those who are around us. No matter their lifestyle, no matter what they look like, if they're different from uh, us or how they act differently, whatever it is, God created them in his image, and they are loved by God just as much as God loves us. And so we need to be willing to reach out, be willing to um, uh, connect with those people in a way where they see God's love. When we stop bearing fruit, we also saw this too, the problem is always traced to the root. If you have no fruit, you need to check the root. The root is a problem, and there needs to be some, some changes there. The root for us would be our hearts, because God can work a, a, a miracle in our hearts and uh, making it tender to Him and allowing us to realize that for, uh, we need to follow Him in all, all our ways. From our heart is where things come from as far as what we say and what we think and what we focus on. And so uh, God can get a hold of our hearts, then he's got a, a, a great opportunity in our lives then to use us for his glory. And then we also too realize too that forgiven people forgive and unforgiving people nurse grudges. If you are an unforgiving person, is there someone in your life that has just wronged you and, and you still have yet to forgive them, uh, then you're nursing that grudge. You're maybe in some way just kind of enjoying that. It's something that you are accustomed to. And to forgive someone, that goes totally against what we would probably want to have happen. We want that person to suffer. We want that person to realize how much they hurt us, so they're going to hurt. But we need to realize that that's not where Jesus is with this, that we need to be forgiving to other people as well, no matter where they're at. Now, does it mean that we go to them and we're all friends and buddy and everything else? Like, not exactly, not exactly. But we do need to forgive. That is commanded. And uh, we will be forgiven just as much as we forgive other people. Keep that in mind as well, too. We saw that, though, this last Sunday. And then there were a number of uh, difficult questions for all of us to consider. And one of them that probably, well, stood out for me, but maybe as well as for you, uh, is the question is, would he find fruit in your life or or just a bunch of good-looking leaves? Because on that fig tree, that's what he saw. He saw leaves. He was expecting fruit. He cursed that fig tree, and when they came from Jerusalem, they're walking back, Peter noticed it. He said, Lord, look at that. (laughs) The fig tree you cursed, it's dead. And we need to realize as well, too, that we shouldn't just have all these good-looking leaves in our lives. We might be doing some wonderful things, whatever, but we need to have fruit in our lives as well, too, uh, producing what what God is wanting to do through us and uh, to grow in Him. So all those things we talked about this last Sunday, and I trust that it was a good challenge for, for you throughout the week to uh, live in the way where um, God would be glorified in your life. We move on to Mark chapter 12, and as we do so, there's a number of uh, events in this chapter, and uh, the one that we're going to be focusing on, though, is on verses 13 through 17. And I trust that we'll hopefully realize that we need to give to God what belongs to God. Basically, that's, that's about it in a nutshell. <laughs> give, to God's, give to God what is God's. Many years ago, when uh, Ronald Reagan was president, a little boy wanted $50 very badly and prayed for a whole week. When nothing happened, he decided to write God a letter. And when the post office received the letter addressed to God, 
for whatever reason, <laughs> they forwarded it to the White House. <laughs> I, I, whatever. I, but President Reagan was both impressed and amused, and so he instructed his aide to send the boy $5, thinking that would be a lot to him. The boy was thrilled with five bucks, and so he sat down and wrote a thank you note. He said, Dear God, thank you very much for sending the money. However, I noticed for some reason you sent it through Washington, and as usual, they kept most of it. <laughs> Today, we're, we're, we're going to address one of the most well-known questions of Jesus. It's the one when he tells us, what we owe God, and, and what we owe the government. It's the, the last week of Jesus' life, and he was just finished telling a powerful parable with an explosive application to the religious leaders. And uh, as, the, as Jesus focused on God's goodness, His grace, and, and His glory, he, he let the leaders know that judgment was coming. It's, it's on its way. And as you can imagine, these guys didn't appreciate being called out by Jesus very much. But if you look at verse 12 of Mark chapter 12, you see these words. It says, Then they looked for a way to arrest him because they knew he had spoken the parable against them. But they were afraid of the crowd, so they left him and went away. So because, uh, because they couldn't arrest him, they regrouped, and then they came up with another plan. According to verse 13 in our portion of Scripture, it said later they sent some of the Pharisees and Herodians to Jesus to catch him in his words. So they were no doubt, uh, no doubt selected for their shrewdness. And uh, the, the, word, the word that you know, catch, catch him in his words, that word catch means to ensnare and was used of catching a bird or a wild beast with a net. They wanted to snag him and get him in his words. Instead of a frontal attack, though, they resorted to a stealthy ambush. And in a, in a parallel account in Matthew chapter 22, verse 15, it mentions that they plotted how to entangle him in his words. So with all that background there, as you see, the first verse there we're going to read um, in Mark chapter 12, verse 13 through 17. Let's look at this together. Later, they sent some of the Pharisees and Herodians to Jesus to catch him in his words. They came to him and said, teacher, we know you are a man of integrity. You aren't swayed by men because you pay no attention to who they are. But you teach the way of God in accordance with the truth. Is it right to pay taxes to Caesar or not? Should we pay or shouldn't we? But Jesus knew their hypocrisy. Why are you trying to trap me, he asked. Bring me a denarius and let me look at it. They brought the coin and he asked them, Whose portrait is this and whose inscription? Caesar's, they replied. Then Jesus said to them, Give to Caesar what is Caesar's, and to God what is God's. And they were amazed at him. <laughs> Luke chapter 20, verse 21, refers to this select group of Pharisees and Herodians as spies. They were spies. The Pharisees and the Herodians re represented the opposite ends of the political spectrum. You couldn't get any further apart from each other. Just as our country is filled with the polarizing hatred uh, between political parties, uh, competing news channels, um, and, and professional sports as well. The political climate at that time was also a powder keg. And you think, it was, you think it's bad now. Back then it was even worse. 
and I want to show you a list to kind of explain the differences between these two groups. If you look at the Herodians and the Pharisees, you see where they line up. The Herodians, they were a secular group. The Pharisees, of course, they were a spiritual group. There's big polarizing area there. The, the Herodians were supportive of the government. The Pharisees were led by God. Uh, the Herodians were pro-Herod, of course, Herodians, kind of their name. And the Pharisees, of course, were anti-Herod. And, and then the Herodians, the pro-tax, they, they, they embraced that quite well. And the Pharisees were anti-tax. They didn't like that at all. And the Herodians, though, hated Jesus. And the Pharisees hated Jesus. So they had something in common with all of this. While they had those opposite agendas and political platforms, the, the bottom line is that the Herodians feared that Jesus would undermine the rule of Herod. And the Pharisees worried that he would upstage their religion. So they both had a skin in the game, if you will. They both wanted to make sure that this guy, Jesus, wouldn't continue on any further. The Pharisees are ready to accuse him of heresy, and the Herodians can't wait to charge him with treason. So on both sides, you've got these, these, these groups shooting at Jesus with all they, they can. But now these two different groups then come together to take out a common enemy. They're basically living out the, uh, the ancient saying, the enemy of my enemy is my friend. And so they gather together. We have a common enemy. Let's get together and let's take care of this. In Psalm uh, chapter 2, uh, Psalm 2, uh, verse 2, it says, The kings of the earth take their stand, and the rulers gather together against the Lord and against His anointed one. So they begin by using flattery, a psychological trick, to soften up Jesus. You know, maybe when you've approached somebody and you had something difficult to say, or maybe you wanted something from someone, you may have started out that way too. Oh, I like that, that outfit you have on. Or, hey, you know, that one thing you did yesterday, that was so wonderful. I can't believe, you know, all the things that, that you were able to do. And, you know, by the way, could I borrow your ladder? <laughs> so, you know, we, we soften up the person that we want to try to maybe manipulate, maybe get something out of, maybe coerce. And so here we have uh, the Herodians and Pharisees doing the same thing. These spies use the, the respectful title of teacher and affirm his integrity. We know that you are a man of integrity. Okay, good. What do you want? <laughs> when you, you're, you're approached by someone like that, you're kind of like, okay, what is it? Get, get to the point. What do you want? What, what do you want from me? Um, and they recognize that he doesn't consult polls before stating his positions, which is kind of refreshing. Um, uh, he, he goes his own way. And when he said, you aren't swayed by men because you pay no attention to who they are. Everything they said about Jesus was true, but they didn't believe any of it. They didn't believe any, any words they were saying. They were using those words to get to Jesus and to set him up. But they identify him as one who teaches the way of God in accordance with the truth. They knew he, ta he taught the way of God, but they wouldn't submit to the will of God. <laughs> we see that in our culture as well, too. People can say all kinds of things about Jesus, but end up not submitting to the one who is the way, the truth, and the life. And thinking they have Jesus right where they want him, these political players create a, a couple of questions that they believe will put him in a predicament at the, at the end of verse 14. Look with me in verse 14. It says, is it right to pay taxes to Caesar or not? Should we pay or shouldn't we? So this was the question of the day. And, and they, they wanted Jesus to answer it so they could attack him. 
uh, from one side or the other side, no matter what he would answer. It's like, okay, we got him. It's almost like the tic-tac-toe game, and you got that guy cornered, and no matter where he moves, you're going to win. This is where they were at. They thought they had Jesus cornered, and they thought he, they were ready to, to nail him, whatever he's going to say. You can probably see the Pharisees ready to go and the Herodians ready to go. It's like, okay, you got him if he says that. We got him if he says this. We're good. And so waiting on that. Now, the topic of taxes, <laughs> it's always volatile, isn't it? The, the Israelites during this, the time of Jesus did not have excessive taxes, but they resisted them because taxes were a reminder that they were under the control of Rome. There's the income tax, there's the ground tax, there's a business tax. You know, when goods were transported to different cities, a tax was collected. This was the job that Matthew had before he left everything to follow, follow Jesus. There's the poll tax. Uh, it's one day's wage, a denarius. And this is the same tax levied by Caesar Augustus when calling for a census that in God's uh, providence brought Joseph and Mary to Bethlehem. The taking of a census infuriated the Jews because it reminded them, of course, that they were under the authority of Rome. They particularly hated this tax because it was a sort of a, a loyalty tax, you know, almost kind of like uh, uh, bowing down to Nebuchadnezzar whenever the music plays. Uh, they didn't want to do this because it showed loyalty to Caesar, and that's not where their loyalties re uh, remained. Warren Worsby summarizes what's going on here. He says, if Jesus opposed the tax, he would be in trouble with Rome. If he approved the tax, he would be in trouble with the Jews. So, again, a rock and a hard place, right? Not knowing how to answer that. Well, he knew how to answer, but not knowing the outcome of this, uh, the Pharisees and Herodians thought they had him. You know, depending on how he answered, either Herodians would have him arrested or the Pharisees would finally have the evidence they needed to go after him. Which would it be? Would he be an enemy of God or would he be an uh, enemy of the government? Let me give a little bit of a, a historical background here, which might be helpful for us in this, this, this context as well too. When Judea became a Roman province in uh, 6 AD, a census was taken so the Romans could enforce a head tax. So each person that was counted, they figure out how much taxes we need to collect. Uh, a Jewish nationalist by, uh, by the name of Judas, now this isn't the Judas you're thinking of of the 12, this is another Judas. He led a revolt against the, this tax because he didn't want this tax revenue used to pay for the army that oppressed them. Why are we giving money to this group that's just going to come back and take us away in chains or come and, and um, cause trouble with us? And we learn about this uprising and how it was crushed in Acts chapter 5, verse uh, 37. It's on the screen there for you as well, too. After him, Judas the Galilean appeared in the days of the census and led a band of people in revolt. He, too, was killed, and all his followers were scattered. So they're hoping Jesus will take the bait in their trap by siding with what Judas did. But instead of going to one side or the other, <laughs> Jesus raises everything to a higher plane. So these enemies start by flattering Jesus, but, but he sees right through, through their, their deceptive ways. If you look at verse 15 of Mark chapter 12, it says, But Jesus knew their hypocrisy. Why are you trying to trap me? He asked. Bring me a denarius and let me look at it. In Luke chapter 20, verse 23, it says that Jesus knew their craftiness. And Matthew uh, chapter 22, verse 18, describes how Jesus knew their wickedness. So you see the description of all this that's going on in the other uh, gospel writers as well. 
these guys were not really interested in what they should do. They just wanted Jesus to incriminate himself. They're like, like mentioned, they were looking for a way to trap him, to catch him. And before they can say anything, Jesus asks, asks for the coin used for paying this tax. And it's interesting that Jesus doesn't have one of these coins on him. <laughs> and the Pharisees were probably excited to give him one because they thought he would side with them and alienate the Herodians. All right, someone got a denarius. You know, get this guy a denarius, somebody. And by asking for a coin, he throws them off guard a little bit. As they dig through their pockets to come up with one, they're probably wondering about his intentions. You, know, you probably have had that before. Someone asks you for something, you're going, okay, sure. And they go, wait, why? <laughs> and I'm sure they're doing the same thing. The Pharisees are digging through and going, okay, someone get a coin, get a Daenerys for him. And Jesus holds up the Daenerys that was used to pay the poll tax. You'll see it up here on the screen as well. It was minted in Rome and was made out of silver. <clears throat> and coins were, were used to spread propaganda and to remind people they were subjects of Rome. And Jesus shows the, the head side, and everyone sees the head of the emperor in, his, in this inscription, Tiberius Caesar, Augustus, son of the divine Augustus. And on the tail side, a female figure is seated on a throne wearing a crown with these words, High Priest. And the coin was basically a, a, a portable idol that promoted a pagan ideology. And so if you carried this around, it always reminded you of uh, who was uh, over you in the government and who was uh, there. And incidentally, a, a denarius was worth a day's wages for a soldier. So to put it into our context today, using the average amount of money a soldier makes in a day, this could be about $150. So no wonder they didn't want to pay this tax. But there are a few possible reasons Jesus asked for that coin. It shows us that he was poor because he carried no money. He didn't have anything with him. He didn't have to. And so uh, that could be a possible reason. Uh, another reason is he wanted everyone to see that the leaders had a coin with an idol on it, and it didn't seem to bother them. Yeah, you wonder about that maybe because you know, if one of those Pharisees had the coin, it's like, well, okay, so how come you hold these coins? What, you know, hmm, all right. And maybe possibly this teaching method got them personally involved as they watched him touch and look at the coin. Those, those uh, uh, visual learners probably just ate that up. They're like, oh, I get this now. He's like, nice coin. And so they were looking at that and, and they were able to understand maybe even a little bit better. But Jesus is, maybe also too, Jesus is now moving the, the discussion from, a pub, from public politics to personal principle as he holds that coin and examines that before everyone. So with everyone looking at Christ and the coin, we hear Jesus ask, whose portrait is this? And whose inscription? <laughs> and the answer is obvious they, as they respond quickly. But then they realize the implications of what they've said. And Jesus has them right where he wants them. In Psalm 9, verse 16, it says, The wicked are snared by the work of their hands. How true that is. The tables have turned because they now need to answer Christ's question at the end of verse 16. When they said, Caesar's, they replied. And you look at how Jesus drives his point home in verse 17 then. 
says, Then Jesus said to them, Give to Caesar what is Caesar's. And so to, to give literally means to deliver or return what is his, to pay back in full back to Caesar. The coin belongs to Caesar, so give it back to him. Their taxes were not optional. Instead, they were an obligation. Um, Caesar is, is due the denarius because he owns the denarius. Give it back to Caesar. In light of what has happened in the last couple of years and what, has, what we may have experienced on <laughs> social media and everything else, let's just kind of remain here for a little, moment, little bit right here in this moment and walk through what the Bible says about our responsibilities to the government as well as our responsibilities to God. First, our responsibilities to the government. There are at least four obligations we have to the government. At least four, if you look in Scripture. One of them is to obey. Now, I probably lost some of you already. <laughs> but to obey. Romans chapter 13, verses 1 and 2 says, Everyone must submit himself to the governing authorities, for there is no authority except that which God has established. The authorities that exist have been established by God. Consequently, he who rebels against the authority is rebelling against what God has instituted, and those who do so will bring judgment on themselves. Now, you can go ahead and search Scripture and go say, Well, what about Daniel? <laughs> what about Daniel? What about this? So this portion of scripture is assuming as well too that those governing authorities are governing in a way that is right in a way that is god honoring when those things don't happen that's when we have people rising up and saying wait a second and to whatever level some people might say wait a second i'll be praying for you or others will say wait a second i'm out of here i'm moving to idaho or i'm moving out of wherever and then we have whatever levels of reaction to what the government is doing. But Scripture tells us we need to obey. We need to obey. Again, as long as it isn't going against what God's principles are. If the, go if the government starts to say everyone needs to now um, uh, pay a yearly uh, fund to um, fund abortion, well, you know what? <laughs> that would probably be a point of contention, obviously, and we would have to disobey. But the thing is, is that some of these things that we've gone through these last couple of years um, might not be as much as that. But like I said, each person deals with it the way they feel that they, to whatever level it is. For some of you, these last couple of years, it was as of, uh, similar to having someone force you to uh, fund abortion because of mask wearing or because of whatever else it was. But the thing is, is that the government is established by God. And we need to follow that as best as we can in obeying. Romans 13. Take a look at that. Romans 13, 1 and 2. And look at it yourself. Do a little study yourself on that and see what you come up with. So one of the response, one of the obligations to our government is to obey. Another obligation is to pay. <laughs> you probably already knew that. Romans chapter 13, verses 6 and 7. Again, in Romans 13, good portion of Scripture to look at in, in light of all this. It says, this is also why you pay taxes, for the authorities are God's servants who give their full time to governing. Give everyone what you owe him. If you owe taxes, pay taxes. If revenue, then revenue. If respect, then respect. If honor, then honor. We pay our taxes to the authorities because that is our obligation. 
even if we don't like it. We do. We can express ourselves with our voice as well as our vote, but ultimately we must pay our taxes because God set up government. As opposed to the person who realized he didn't pay enough tax and, and so he sent an anonymous letter to the IRS that read, my conscience is bothering me. Enclosed, you will find $175, which I owe in taxes. If my conscience continues to bother me, I'll send you the rest. We need to pay. A third obligation that we see is from 1 Timothy chapter 2, verses 1 and 2, is to pray. To pray. It says, I urge then, first of all, that requests, prayers, intercession, and thanksgiving be made for everyone for kings and all those in authority, that we may live peaceful and quiet lives in all godliness and holiness. This is good, verse 3. This is good and pleases God our Savior, in verse 4, who wants all men to be saved and to come to a knowledge of the truth. This is good. And it's not, does it say to benefit the kings and authority? No, it says to benefit us live peaceful lives. It also says, too, that this is good and pleases God, who wants all men to be saved and to come to a knowledge of the truth. I don't know how you've been praying for our governor, whether you like her or not. That's neither here nor there, really. I don't know how you've been praying for our president and vice president, whether you like them or not. Again, that's neither here nor there. The idea is that we need to be praying for them. And we need to be praying for them in a way that it's not, you know, oh, I don't know, whatever. We need to be praying in a way where it says, where, where we say, uh, save them. Help them know you. <laughs> help them realize their need for you. If they know you, help them to live it out. We pray for them in a spiritual context in a way that, that they would know God. They would know a relationship with Jesus Christ. We need to be praying. <laughs> We need to be praying. It's pretty amazing, though, that this, this in, in, in 1 Timothy chapter 2 is coming during a time when Nero was in authority. Can you imagine that? <laughs> Some of the Christians reading that letter and going, ha, ha, are you kidding me? Pray for Nero? Pray for the guy who blamed Christians for the fire that destroyed much of Rome? Pray for the guy who who has denied Christians' privileges in society and, 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 and publicly butchered them, burned them, or fed them to the animals? Are you kidding me? Now, I, I don't think any of us have been fed to the animals by President Biden. Figuratively, you might, you know, whatever. But um, why don't we pray for him? Why don't we pray for her? Why don't we pray for our governor? Why don't we pray for those of officials that they would govern godly? That they would, if they don't, that they would realize their need for God. We need to be praying for them. Man, it's so easy to complain. <laughs> so easy to complain about them. When was the last time you prayed for our governor in the way that I mentioned? When was the last time you prayed for our president or vice president? They need wisdom. They need protection. They, they do. They are, they are created in the image of God. And if we are on one aspect saying abortion, no way. Well, we also need to look at the other aspect of it too, life in general. The sanctity of life, not just in the, in the womb. 
but all around. And if we pray for the protection, we need to be praying for their wisdom from God. If they don't know that, then we need to be praying for their salvation, that they would know God, that they would have a relationship with Christ. And, and maybe some of you have thought, yeah, our governor, are you kidding? So far away, who would be saved? You know, if he can save you, <laughs> he can save anyone, right? And so we need to be praying in that way. So that's a third obligation uh, 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 with government. Uh, fourth obligation is to stay. Fourth obligation is to stay. In Titus chapter 3, verses 1 and 2, it says, Remind the people to be subject to rulers and authorities, to be obedient, to be ready to do whatever is good, to slander no one, to be peaceable and considerate, and to show true humility toward all men. Wow, there's a verse, verses there that kind of hit us right between the eyes, huh? We need to stay. Let the government see us doing good things and make sure we are not giving Christ a bad name through what we say or do. One of the, one of the key motivations for us in engaging our community is just that right there. So if people in our community, not just people in households, but people in our community like the schools, uh, the water authority, the fire station, uh, police station, all those people also, too, in government, will see, hey, this church body cares for our community. Look at the good things that they're doing. Look at how they love each other. Wow, that's a special group. wonder why. Because we always have an opportunity then to share our story if we do these things. We need to let them see us do these good things and, and, and showing love to one another. One another. We need to live in peace and be considerate of other citizens, other people in our community, our neighborhoods, loving them no matter how cantankerous that neighbor is, no matter how different that other neighbor is from us. We need to show God's love to them and let them see that. As Americans, we have the right and the privilege to be involved because we live in a democracy. Don't pull out, but stay involved. We need to stay Vote your values, uphold biblical principles, and be ready to be used by God wherever He has placed you. We do that. Amazing things will be happening. Jesus could have stopped with the first part of His answer there and silenced both sides, but He wasn't finished, as you probably already anticipated. Not done yet. Our responsibilities to the government and to God are not meant to be at odds. Though we know from Acts chapter 5, verse 29, that when they are, we must do as Peter did and the apostles, where he said, we must obey God rather than men. I understand that, and that's biblical. Sometimes we place that title and that verse over everything that we just disagree with the government with. We, we can't go there. But we have responsibilities as citizens of earth and responsibilities as citizens of heaven. Dual citizenship. <laughs> we actually have both on our currency, uh, in a, uh, a coin, a quarter, on the front and the heads, it's, well, yeah, there's small print. In God we trust. It's still there. <laughs> in God we trust. And uh, on the other side, no matter what kind of design is on the back of the quarter, and there have been a lot of different designs over the years, but it still says uh, e pluribus uh, unum, 
I don't think I'm pronouncing that right, but it's been there forever. But basically it means one, uh, out of many, one. Out of many, one. And that's our citizenship gathering together as a group like that. First um, Peter chapter 2, verse 17, seems to be pretty helpful in all this. It says, honor everyone, love the brotherhood, fear God, honor the emperor. So honor everyone. There are so many issues that divide us right now as a country. Do you know it's possible to honor even when we disagree? We can. This includes what we post on social media. And to honor someone is to fix a high value by esteeming or prizing them. To honor is to treat with distinction. To dishonor is to treat someone like dirt. And Man, I've seen so many times on, on social media posts and, and responses and reactions to other people's posts that they're just treating other people like dirt. We need to remember that each human has been uniquely created in God's image. So honor everyone. Love the brotherhood. We have an even higher obligation to love our brothers and sisters in Christ. And this word for love is agapeo, which means we don't love only if we feel like it, but as an act of obedience. We obey. And the word brotherhood means those born from the same womb. That means we're to love brothers and sisters in Christ, those who have been born again, who, have, who vote differently than we do, who look a different style, who like a different style of music than we do, who have a different color of skin than we do, or from a different generation than we are, or root for a different team than we do. Can we commit to not allow our political views to fracture our fellowship? Can we commit to that? Can we commit to that from here on out, no matter what? I mean, if you were asked that question before 2019, how would you have fulfilled that? Would that have worked for you? Remember that among the 12 disciples were two guys who most likely hated each other. <laughs> Simon the Zealot was all about overthrowing Rome, while Matthew collect, uh, collected taxes for Rome. Can you imagine? Those two guys together in the same group and, and coming together to try to do it going forward. They came from opposite sides of the aisle but were on the same team and focused more, and here's the key, they focused more on the kingdom of God than the kingdom of man. When we focus on the kingdom of God, those differences just melt away. But when we focus on the kingdom of man, you better believe those differences are going to be <laughs> mountainous. Uh, fear God, as 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 17 says. You can sense uh, the increasing intensity as, as we move from honoring all people to, to loving fellow family members to fearing God. The fear is to revere, which leads to obedience. We will never honor and love people until we first fear God. In Psalm 128, verse 1, it says, Blessed are all who fear the Lord, who walk in His ways. Some of us have become so familiar with God that we no longer have a, a healthy fear of Him. We need to get back to that. And then honor the emperor, as 1 Peter chapter 2 tells us. This is incredible, again, when you think about the kind of man the emperor was. In a, in a similar way, we are called to esteem the office of the president, even if we don't like the particular person in the office. Good Christians are good citizens. Let's go back to, to Mark chapter 12, verse 17. I think we stayed here uh, long enough <laughs> in that moment. 
And notice the little word and in that verse 17. And he says to God, what is God's? We have a twofold debt made up of a, of a horizontal and, and whoop, vertical and horizontal. <laughs> and uh, those, those obligations are, are different like that. Two words come to mind as it relates to our responsibilities to God, though. Two words. One is live. How do we know what belongs to God? What bears His, what bears his image? What bears his, every one of us bears His image. So since Genesis chapter 1, verse 26 says that we are made in His image and created by Him for His purposes, so we must live for Him. Government takes a, a percentage for taxes, but God rightfully deserves 100%. God has a claim on His creation because the Almighty owns us. We could say it like this, we owe the one who owns us, because we do. 2 Timothy chapter 2, verse 19 says, Nevertheless, God's solid foundation stands firm, sealed with this inscription, The Lord knows those who are His. He knows. He knows those who are His. And R.C. Uh, Sproul writes this about all, all this type of topic. He says, Every one of us has been stamped with an image by the supreme authority in heaven and earth. God Himself has placed His image on us. Caesar owned that denarius, but he did not own the people of his time. Likewise, the state does not own us. God owns us. He has the supreme right to claim our lives as his own. So then we are to render to God the things that are God's, including our lives, our liberty, our possessions, and our affections. We need to live. We need to live for God. Then another word is to give we need to give. Belong to Him, and everything I own is His as well, and we give back to Him. You know, you say it another way, my person and my possessions are stamped with His ownership. Whatever you have, whatever you're able to do, it's, it, they're His. He's, a, gave, he's given that to you anyway in the first place. Jesus tells us to give to God the things that are God's. Or literally, the things belonging to God. Psalm 24, verse 1, it says, The earth is the Lord's and everything in it, the world and all who live in it. Doesn't leave much behind there. <laughs> so everything is God's anyway. And just as the government is owed our taxes, we owe God because He owns everything. It's not really optional. Because He owns us, we, we owe Him. We owe the one who owns us. We are God's coinage. <laughs> Because His image is stamped on our lives. And some of us are over, uh, uh, overspend because we feel like we always need more. It happens. The spirit of, of dissatisfaction, discontent can really derail our spiritual lives. We need to be on guard on that. And the key, though, is to live for God so that we can give to God. And we live for Him. We can give to God. This isn't really a sermon, though, on, on, on giving, so let me just briefly say that a tithe, 10%, is a good place to start. Good place to start. A good question that can move you further on is this, does my giving reflect the grace of God in my life as I offer to Him what belongs to Him anyway? That would be a good question to ask yourself as you approach this topic. Now, probably after the service or sometime this day. I'd, Becky and I are probably going to go out to lunch, maybe, maybe dinner. I don't know. Our kids are away. They're out in different countries. 
<laughs> Maddie's down in Mexico. Brianna's over in Italy. <laughs> so we are kind of empty nesters right now. So the cost of lunch won't be so big. <laughs> but even so, would anybody like to give me 40 bucks for, uh, for lunch? Anyone at all? I'm, anyone? Sure, anyone? Oh, thank you. All right. Let me give you some background about this. The reason Don was so quickly able to, once he found it, able to give me 40 bucks <laughs> is that I had given the money to him already. It was mine. So for him, he was probably like, yeah, it's not mine anyway. Here, <laughs> go ahead. You can have the 40 bucks. In other words, it wasn't his money in the first place. It was my money. Yeah, I'm thankful you gave it back. But in a similar way, when we live and when we give, we realize that our person and our possessions don't belong to us. Everything we are and everything we have belongs to God. And it makes sense then that we give to him what is his in the first place. But for some reason, some reason, we just want to hold on to it. Or maybe just give a little, yeah, here we go, a little bit of my life, a little bit of my time. When God's saying, I own you. I sent my son to die for you. I created this whole thing for you. And you give me this? We should be eager to give all to him. Check out the last phrase of verse 17. It says, and they were amazed at him. <laughs> of course. They were struck with astonishment and admiration. Of course. In Mark's gospel, people had strong reactions to Jesus. Listeners were never passive about Jesus or bored with him. There's no way to just ignore him. He either made people angry or astonished or amazed or they are in awe. People fought against him or they, they put their faith in him. And the same is true today. You will reject him or you will receive him. There's no middle ground on this. And if you think there is, you're fooling yourself. <laughs> There's no middle ground. In Luke chapter 20, verse 26, we read that they were not able to catch him, but marveling at his answer, they became silent. Matthew adds as well, too. He says, and they left him and went away. They were amazed, yet they went away. They could find no blame, so they just left in humiliation. Do you know there are still people today that do that? Don't just listen and then go away. Don't just think, oh, that is amazing. What amazing person, uh, maybe even the Son of God, that, 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 that Jesus is, and then just go away. If you're amazed, then accept it. If you're amazed, accept what He's done except for what he's done for you, and believe and then receive him as your Lord and Savior. Don't just stand idly by and go, wow, that's, a, that's neat. Oh, yeah, that, that Jesus, yeah, he is amazing. Act upon it. Do something about it. Our life, which bears God's image, belongs to God. So are you giving God all that is rightfully his? 
Giving to God what belongs to God means that I am so amazed by Him that I surrender all that I am and all that I have. It's time. It's time to give ourselves back to Him because we owe the one who owns us. I'm going to have the worship team calling up. They're going to lead us in the last couple of songs. As they do so, I trust that your focus today is what He has done for you. And if you still need to be able to give over to God what is His already, I trust you can take some time to pray and do that in prayer. Come to the Lord and say, you know, <laughs> I guess I've been withholding some things. Lord, you have, you've created everything. You, you are God, and I've withheld. I need to give what is rightfully yours anyway. And so a couple songs we're going to be singing. I trust that we'll focus in on that. Help us to be guided by that. And if you need to come pray, yeah, the altar is open for you to pray. Uh, those who are joining us online through, too, uh, I, I trust that God has been speaking to your heart and the Holy Spirit's leading you in that. Don't ignore it. Respond to the Holy Spirit's prompting in your life.